Hello and welcome to the victory of day nine. Oh, why do I call it victory? Because that's what it feels like to actually record this thing. It would have been so easy, and it almost happened, to get home from the trip, get back involved in parish life, and not ever finish up with the last day. So, it's good to actually be here. By the grace of God, it has to be. So, and I get to use an outside voice, I get to use a better voice, maybe during the last eight episodes, I hate calling them episodes, last eight episodes, last eight recordings, there we go. It sounded a bit subdued, but that was because I was in a hotel room, and I didn't know how thin the walls were, what my neighbors, or if there were anybody in my neighboring hotel rooms, so I was a bit reserved. But now, back at my rectory with nobody around, not even the dog is here right now, uh, I could, uh, I can use whatever voice I want. So I can use the outside voice and be a bit more clear and projective. So, hopefully this one's a bit better than the other ones. Although, on the other hand, I have had a long day. And, yeah, I, ooh, it was close that I didn't make this, because it's been that kind of day. So, victory here, but get to use the outside voice. And, that's nice. So, day nine in Jerusalem and beyond. What was it? We began with something that was definitely not part of last year's pilgrimage and something I suspect, well not I suspect, it's obvious, is very particular to this year, this pilgrimage being for priests. We got to go visit with the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, which is as excellent as it sounds. Basically, he's the Catholic bishop of the whole area. Now, being the Patriarch, being the Bishop of Jerusalem would be hard enough anyways. Uh, But this poor fellow, Pierre Battista Pizzaballa, the apostolic administrator of the Patriarchate of Jerusalem, has even more than just that. He's also responsible not only for Israel, but also for Jordan, for Cyprus, and Palestine. And that's a lot. There's not that many Catholics necessarily in that whole area. I think Wikipedia says 144,000 or something around that number, but he is the bishop of four countries who aren't friends, and even within those areas, there are lots of religious groups, some tied to countries, some not, who also aren't friends, and even in the city of Jerusalem, there's lots and lots of drama there, so pray for the peace of Jerusalem, like the Psalms say, pray for Apostolic Administrator Archbishop Pierre, because He has so much work to do, and it's unfathomably complicated. Really, it is, both locally and internationally. I shudder to think how much time he spends just in correspondence between who knows all of the many things that he has to deal with. But he was very gracious to meet with us for about half an hour on Tuesday? Monday morning. Monday morning. Uh, So that was very nice. We got to meet in a... Uh, a fancy diplomacy room, if you will, uh, had a big, not a fireplace, but I don't think it was a fireplace, but it had a big uh, backing at one end of the room, kind of, it was a rectangle-shaped room, nice tile floor, stained glass windows, uh, classy um, icons of the apostles around the top, but it also looked like something that you could see, you know, with a president sitting together with a, a big crest on the back wall and a big uh, a brick structure, I think, uh, with flags, 
it looked very much like a thing you would see in the news with two with diplomats from around the world meeting up. So he sat at the front of the room, and us priests sat uh, in kind of a U shape in the chairs on the outside outside edge of the room. And he explained a bit about his diocese, explained some of the difficulties again of being the bishop of Israel, Jordan, Cy- Cyprus, and Palestine all at the same time. And you know, kind of gave us a little bit of a feel for what his ministry is like and uh, what things are going on there. Again, most of it is just trying to navigate this super tense, super difficult political and religious world that he's in. Uh, you know, it's it would be awesome if the Bishop of Jerusalem could be doing uh, lots of evangelizing and preaching the gospel uh, like, you know, like we like read about the book of Acts. But it's not that, I mean, he is certainly um, as much as he is able, but uh, not to, I suppose, make complaints or ma- not to make excuses, but uh, the world is more complicated than it was then in a certain sense. Uh, he didn't have other Christians even to be worrying about. Certainly there's that. Uh, but there's lots of, for example, both the Orthodox and the Muslims and the Jews don't take kindly to people converting to Catholicism. It's not something that you do lightly. There are, uh, of course, cultural repercussions, family repercussions, at least for uh, Orthodox Christians and Jews. Uh, they might disown you from the family where you do convert. For Muslims, it's strictly speaking, it's, it's, it's illegal. So uh, in a country like Jordan, which is Muslim rule, for someone to become a Catholic might get them killed. So there's some difficulties there. Um, another problem is that most of the Catholics in Israel are there as visiting workers, and Israel is terrible to them. There's really no, no other way to put it. They allow them to come work for only five years at a time, which, okay, that's, that's maybe standard procedure, but this part is what really gets me. If they marry or have children, they become illegal. They're which means the other way around is they're only allowed to be there if they aren't happy. If they come and work and then leave. That's all they're allowed to do. So, God forbid you find someone you want to spend the rest of your life with and want to have children like every normal human being in the entire world. No, if you do that, you have to either leave immediately or you become unregistered and liable to be deported. Thanks, Israel. That's so great way to treat your workers. So, which means that he has a diocese of a modest number of Catholics, but there are very few marriages and very few children because of this situation that Israel, the way Israel treats its workers. So that's a great, you could tell a great pain on him for, um, it's a way that really stunts the life of the church because the church grows through conversion, certainly, but also through new life. And if the state policy where you're living explicitly plans on controlling and limiting that. I mean, the Israelites, the the Jews obviously uh, don't want other people coming in and overpopulating them. So they treat them poorly to prevent that from happening. If one looks back, that sounds like something they might have learned from Egypt. Uh, Forgive me for saying that so harshly, but that's sure what it seems like. And they try and reduce them to uh, prevent them from taking over. Understandable concern, I suppose, if you're Israel, but still, um, it's a pretty awful way to treat those who come to do work for you. 
anyways, the patriarch was very gracious and gave us his time, which he certainly has very little of. Later, after that, we went back to our hotel, and because it was raining, we didn't get to do some of the things we were going to do. We were going to go to uh, the Wailing Wall, as well as visit the Church of St. Anne and um, the Pools of Bethesda. Uh, However, because of the rain that had been happening for several days in a row at this point, um, the Wailing Wall would have been miserable, and the pools and the church were, I think, flooding, or at least the pools were flooding, so it would have been all in all a miserable experience to go try and do that so we didn't so we went back to the hotel which left some free time so i took it one more chance to go into the old city of jerusalem and to go uh, wander around a bit more and I, I arrived at the new gate which you always do that's where the train kind of drops you off but i wanted to be at the jaffa gate but it was uh, encouraging to me that uh, just by intuition and kind of guessing I'd been to one and been to the other from the outside, but had never gone from one to the other on the inside of the city. And so I was like, you know what, I I bet if I go this, it'll probably curve. And sure enough, I arrived at the Jaffa Gate and began kind of eyeing the vendors whom I had gone over there for. But I could soon tell that you shouldn't go shopping hungry. Because I I was being indecisive and I kind of wanted something, but I, I, I felt myself at risk for buying something dumb that I didn't actually want. And especially the, the, the vendors convinced me of this because they would be like, oh, hey, father, father, come here. I have something to ask you, which you know at the very beginning is a scam immediately. If they're, if they're going to be friendly like that and kind of pretend to be jovial and be your buddy, they're up to something. Never trust them when they do that. So one of the guys particularly calls me, father, father, come here. I have to ask you something. I kind of, all right, what? And I go over there. Oh, could you do me a favor? All the more anxious, all the more nervous. What? What? Could you bless my shop? This guy asks me, who is obviously not a Christian, pretending to be one. Father, bless my shop. Dude, no. Ask your local priest. He'll come do it, knowing full well this dude's not a Christian at all. He's never going to ask a priest. But he's trying to con me into, you know, oh, I blessed your shop, so I'm going to buy stuff. Nah, man. Not doing it. So I walked off. Went and had some lunch. Found a, a little, uh, Yiro shop, they call it shawarma, but it's, you know, the the beef and lamb shaved together with vegetables in a wrap. Excellent. Best I had the whole trip. Uh, had that in a orange Fanta, I think. Oh, yeah, they gave me a $2 bill for change from the restaurant. The guy, you know, usually when you get $2 bills, it's like a novelty, but he just gave it to me as normal change. It's like, oh, wow, what do you know? So anyways, enjoyed my lunch, had some more time to kill, kept walking around, Thought I'd find somewhere new and exciting. Not, not exciting. Somewhere new I hadn't seen yet. So went to a familiar street, but then uh, kept going. Uh, went up, you know, saw some little angle. Like, oh, what's up there? And uh, went up there to a different shop that I hadn't seen yet. And then kept going and uh, quickly found myself delightfully in literally just neighborhood streets. You know, no more vendors, no more uh, shops, no more uh, signs or restaurants. Just literal back streets, people's neighborhoods. It was like going from a downtown setting to just being in suburban life, as much as one can have suburbia in an ancient medieval city. But there it was. So I wandered around. Um, Fortunately, I have a pretty good memory for uh, turns and directions, and so I could wander kind of around a bit and go, okay, as long as I 
you know, I turned left at the railing with the bike attached to it and the three pots outside the front door. As long as I remembered that, I could get back. So I would wander around, maybe find a dead end, maybe find, you know, an outside wall again and turn back. Spent about 20 minutes doing that. Uh, did not get lost, was always able to trace myself back. And uh, eventually came to a big open space uh, where there was a, um, a synagogue and a plaza. Found a lovely little coffee shop, I forget what it was called, but had some amazing dessert and espresso. I don't remember what it's called. Some, some of, when I post the picture, some of you will know, oh, it's that kind of dessert, uh, but it was kind of a, had a chocolate, it looked like a muffin with no top on it, but when you bit it, or you dug your spoon into it, liquid chocolate came out of the middle, and it was absolutely fantastic. Powdered sugar on top, pile of whipped cream on the side, it was amazing. I didn't want to finish it because, I didn't want to keep eating because then it would be gone. It was that kind of dessert. And it was <clears throat> raining outside, coffee, hot chocolate dessert, inside, fantastic. Finished that, very content. I think, okay, let me start wandering back to where I'm, back to the gate that I need to be at to catch the train to get back because we were leaving at uh, 1.45 for our last uh, part of the day. So, as I'm going, just kind of taking my time, philosophizing as I walk, uh, I do spot some stoles hanging in a window. You know, stoles like a priest wears at mass. And I thought, oh, those are those are more beautiful. I had seen stoles around before, but not what they were all, you know, souvenir quality, right? Mass produced or at least cheaply produced ones, obviously meant to get priests to buy them as souvenirs. And, you know, few places in the world are priests a large enough market to target them especially specifically with souvenirs, but you know, Jerusalem is one of those kind of places. You know, Rome is like that too. But these were actually nice ones. They were, you could tell by how they were out of the way and not really displayed that much at all. They were just on the wall of his shop, which I saw through the window, but there was no signs, there was no drama, there was no display. He wasn't outside trying to call me in. It was just a quiet little street. So I kind of peeked in for a bit to see that it was even actually a store, and I look in and see a little old man at a sewing machine working away on something. So I kind of look at him for a little bit more off to the side where he can't see me, but eventually decide that it's worth going in and knock on the window. He lets me into his shop, and um, turns out that this man is the mayor, quote, mayor of the Syriac Orthodox community. He tells me he's been a tailor all his life and that he's one of the oldest members of his community, you know, Syriac Orthodox, obviously, a kind of a kind of Orthodox, uh, not the Greek Orthodox, but from Syria back in the day, and which is the, I, from what the patriarch told us, the oldest community in town. Um, it's complicated. Somehow, the Syriac Orthodox were the first, or the most, the longest residing there. I'm not sure. Either way, um, he was a delightful little old man. And uh, he showed me all of the stoles that he had for sale. And I picked one out, of course. And um, was show, telling me things, telling me about you know his friend who was a bishop somewhere else and things, people he had made stuff for and how proud he was to be, do, to be working in this community. And it was a delightful experience. This man was very joyful to be sharing with me uh, his work and his community and to be selling his, his wares to, to a priest. Um, you know, we'd been warned by our tour guide that, oh, you know, 
you know, lots of vendors will, will pretend to be Christians, uh, but very, very few of them actually are. You know, this man wasn't even strictly a vendor, but he was obviously selling things in this area. And uh, he definitely was. Uh, he was so joyful, so authentic. Uh, in fact, he even uh, insisted that we pray together the Our Father in Aramaic before he would let me leave his shop. Uh, now, unfortunately, I had somewhere to be. I'd love to stay. All, I would love to have stayed all day and talked with him because he was uh, honestly a, a treasure of a little man. But I did have to go, so I uh, prayed prayed with him very graciously, uh, very gracious to be able to pray with him, and uh, excused myself and and of course paid and uh, assured him that I would uh, pass on anybody. Uh, to him who might be interested. So if you know, if you're looking for beautiful handmade liturgical things, uh, stoles and stuff like that, go see Sami on the east side of the Church of the Holy... No, south of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I do not know what street it's on, but you know, just wander. You can find it. So, uh, left his shop, um, started to head back. Uh, I did take a glance over at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There, I could see I could see the domes of it across the rooftops. And I had a moment's thought to, to you know, maybe I should go over and go inside one more time. But no. I've been in there four or five times this trip, and of course it is the holiest place, and it's fantastic to go there, and it's such a blessing to be able to go there. But at a certain time, as weird as it is, you're done. And it's mostly because there's so much drama and so much, uh, it, it's such a special place, you kind of want it to stay special. And if you go to the place of Calvary and the tomb of resurrection too many times, you might take them for granted, which is a strange thing. You can almost go too much to this holy place. Now, it's important to remember that as import- as special as these places are, in every Catholic church everywhere around the world is something even more important. Right? The Eucharist is the actual presence of Christ, not just where Christ was. So as important as Calvary is, as important as the empty tomb is, they're nothing compared to what's in every tabernacle of every Catholic church around the world. So in a certain sense, I could pass by in peace, not going one more time, because I can find something more important so near at hand anywhere else everywhere else in the world. So I didn't have to hang on to these special places, even though they are, of course, very special. So after all that, I did hustle myself back, fortunately remembering my directions very well and getting back to the gate, getting onto the train, getting back to uh, getting back to the hotel in time to catch the bus to go to a place called Ein Kerem, which is the place where Mary visited Elizabeth. Remember, uh, there's the Annunciation that happens. She is... Uh, to be with child by, by the Holy Spirit, and then she goes and hastes to the hill country of the city of Judah and visits Elizabeth, visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is also with child. So Ein Kerem is the place where that was. And there's, of course, a church of the visitation there. A very, very beautiful painting of Mary, uh, sort of out in the desert, but she's, she's welcoming us in. She has this uh, great sense of greeting in a, in a, in a powerful motherly kind of way, but also of course, benevolent. And, um, one of the, one of the most beautiful paintings in any of the churches in all of the Holy land, honestly, um, spent some time up there. That's where we had mass, uh, did offer, uh, not quite all of them, but many of my pilgrimage prayers for that day, uh, in that play, in that church, uh, both upstairs and in the crypt below. 
Um, and then we went down the valley uh, to intend to go to the Church of John the Baptist, uh, which was where Elizabeth and Zachariah lived. Clarification. There are two places Elizabeth, Elizabeth and Zachariah lived. Uh, Zachariah, being of the priestly class, would have had some more income than most. Um, and it would be good, like priests need to sometimes, to get away from that life. And so uh, he actually had a house, sort of the normal house uh, down in the valley, you know, a cave like everybody else. But they also had a place up on the mountainside, a little bit of a, they had vineyards up there, a bit of a way a bit of an, you know, a summertime when it's really hot to go somewhere a little bit cooler. And so uh, John the Baptist was born and lived in the place down in the valley, thus the church of John the Baptist. And up on the hill is the sort of summer home where Mary met Elizabeth and the infant in her womb leaped for joy. So unfortunately, the church of John the Baptist was closed. That happened sometimes. It was under renovation and um, the one part that was open, a priest was saying mass there when we when we arrived. So we couldn't go in. We couldn't venerate that spot. Uh, but that's okay. We can still pray. And on pilgrimage, you miss sometimes. You can't get everything. It's just the way it is. We came back to the di- came back for dinner at the hotel one last time. Packed up, got on the bus, went to the airport. And let me tell you, Israel Israel's airport has so much security so much at the gate even outside like on the road outside the airport they stopped the bus and asked what we were doing and they could have checked IDs if they wanted to but they didn't Uh, but they did come on the bus and kind of look around for a second we get to the terminal Uh, usually you just you know get in the line to check your bag but they had someone at the front of that line asking you some questions then you then you get to a kiosk in the middle and they ask you more questions. Where have you been? What were you here for? Who did you talk to? Did you, you know, anyone give you anything? All that sort of stuff. And then you get to the counter to give them your bags. You didn't give them your bags yet. So you give them your bags in the usual way. They you know, tag it and off down the conveyor belt it goes. Then you go around to security in the normal way, sort of. Except they swab your bag with everything. They like the with like an explosion residue detector. You know, like they look for gunpowder basically, and then you know normal. Um, what am I trying to say? Oh, metal detector kind of security. There's that. You know, belt off, shoes off, that sort of stuff. Uh, you do that stage, and then you think you're done. You think you're free to go. No, 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 not yet. So you come to a little set of barriers, and you have to. Um, look at the camera and scan your passport and um, you get a little permission to leave the country thing. You got one that's on the way in and permission to be there. Uh, so you get a piece of paper that's saying, that's saying you're allowed to leave. You go down the, uh, down the long ramp and you're, you know, the usual like restaurants, you know, airplane terminal thing. You think you're done, but wait, there's more. So when you get to your gate to go to get actually on the plane, there's yet one more screening. So they call, they, a very narrow line is formed, and somewhat one by one you have to go through, and they, one more time, uh, look at your bags, check your things. You may bring no liquids whatsoever. Even if you bought a bottle of water literally five minutes ago in the airport from the restaurant, past security, can't come on the plane, got to throw that away. So you get on the plane with, like, nothing, not even any dignity left, 
And finally, 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 you get to leave. You almost get the sense they want you to want to leave. Probably not, because they want your tourist money, but still. Wow, it's a lot of security. But I get it. Jews have not been treated well throughout history. Everyone tends to be out for them. It's the weirdest thing. But I think there's a theological reason for that. Not a good one, mind you, but uh, I think it's the truth of what happens. You see, no one likes God's chosen... Well, not no one, sorry. Um, Often, God's people, God's chosen people, are treated poorly exactly because they are that. And I think it's really something... Um, it's just sort of a general evil in the world that those people who got to hate something, they pick the Jews and it's to put it bluntly, it's the devil working in them. And it sort of, in a way it speaks theologically of how they are still God's chosen people. Even though Christianity, Catholicism specifically, uh, is the fullness of the fulfillment of the, of God's plan for salvation. He maintains his promise to the Jews. Uh, Listen to, actually it was in this morning's Office of Readings, uh, from the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church of the Second Vatican Council, from Lumen Gentium. In the first place, there is that people, the Jews, which was given the covenants and the promises and from which Christ was born by human descent, the people which is by God's choice most dear on account of the patriarchs. God never repents of his gifts, or his call. So that's just a little bit uh, from the Second Vatican Council reminding us that the Jews, the Israelites, uh, though they have not seen the Messiah, unfortunately, um, they don't recognize him yet, uh, God does, does still hold a, ple- a special place for them in his heart. In a certain sense, that seems to explain why so often in, around the world and throughout time, Uh, The Jews tend to be a target of violence and uh, hatred and things like that uh, because they are still God's chosen people and uh, the evil one hates God's whatever belongs to the Lord. So, given all of that, remember the the Jews' long history of being a mistreated people, uh, I sort of understand their airport security, that their rigorous and thorough and frankly exhausting airport security... um, If I'm them, I'm going to do that too, because if my entire people's history has been persecution, yeah, I'm going to expect it to happen at the airport. So it was exhausting and I hated it, but I understand it. So finally, I was on the plane, safe travels, three flights, Tel Aviv to Dulles, Dulles to Houston, Houston to Oklahoma City, mom picked me up at the airport got in the car, drove back to Weatherford, had mass for the college students that evening, which was good to do, uh, and then fell into bed and got eight hours of sleep. And I meant to lay low today, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. There's three weeks of to-dos and emails and, uh, honestly, things that had to get taken care of pretty quickly to take care of today. Uh, because there's Mass at the prison tomorrow, and then all of a sudden it's Sunday Masses, and here we go. So, I'm counting on the grace of God to see me through. That's what the so is. Uh, The pilgrimage was not a vacation. It wasn't quite a retreat. It was was a pilgrimage. And so, while it was 
in some ways very restful and delightful. Um, it was mostly about prayer. So uh, I'm certainly counting on uh, the graces received from that pilgrimage. Uh, if not to, you know, give me uh, rest and relaxation, that's not what it's about, but to uh, give me and all those for whom I prayed uh, the grace to continue moving forward, to uh, look for the joy of Christ in the gospel, to do good work for the sake of the salvation of souls, and to, of course, most important thing, await the resurrection and life of heaven. So thank you for listening to all of my descriptions of the Holy Land, of all the things that uh, were I'm blessed to be able to do. Thank you to my benefactor, all those who have helped me and prayed for me to make this possible, and honestly, all of the many things that make priest life excellent. So many uh, lay folks especially do such good things for us and make life such a blessing. So thank you for all of that. Uh, Please pray for me and know of my prayers for you.